I want to invite you to turn to page, I believe it's 522 in your pew Bible or uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've got a Bible, turn there, Ecclesiastes. We're going to be in chapter 8 and chapter 9 this morning in this great book of wisdom, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. When you're there, go ahead and stand with me, and we're going to read God's Word together. We're going to be reading a number of verses today. We're going to start with 8, 1, and read through chapter 9, verse 10. So please follow along as I read. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil, in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although a man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what it is to be. <coughs> For he cannot tell how it will be. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. Verse 10 then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city and where they had done such things. This is also vanity because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this is also vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better than under the sun than to eat and to drink to be joyful, for this will go well with him in all of his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and to him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is also, uh, is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after they may go to the dead, after that they may go to the dead, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their evil 
have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go eat your bread and jo with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Father, we ask that as we study these verses, these Proverbs, the string of wisdom, that you would help us understand it and rightly apply it. I pray that you would help me to speak your truths from this text, not merely my opinions and ideas. I pray that you would help us to receive it as your word. Cause us to change as a result of hearing it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to speak to you this morning on these verses, and I'm going to tag my sermon, Contentment in Frustration. Contentment, somebody say contentment, in frustration. When we are frustrated, we can still be content. That's our goal today. A pilot once confessed that when he was a kid, he would sit at a pond fishing, and he would look up and wish that he was flying. And he said, now that I'm flying, whenever I fly over a pond, I look down, and all I wish is that I was fishing. You see, whether we're a child sitting at a pond with a pole in our hands, looking upward, or whether you're a successful pilot looking down at a lonely pond, the grass is always greener on the other side. Amen? I wonder why that is. Well, let's think about it. In the mind of the child, he has his frustrations. Maybe for him, his frustration is nothing more than boredom, and so he's looking upward. But now that he's a pilot, he's arrived, he's in the air, and he has the frustrations of stress work. And he sees that pond and he's reminded of a simpler day. You see, I think our frustrations keep us from our contentment. Are you with me? Our frustrations tend to speak louder than our joy. And so the question that I want to ask today going into this text is, can my contentment speak louder than my frustrations? Or will my frustrations always speak louder than my contentment? In the original, the original uh, recipients of this, this writing would have been the, the children of Israel. We don't know exactly when it was written. We can assume perhaps Solomon wrote it. Some argue it could have been someone at a later date. doesn't change the meaning of it or the fact that it's the Word of God. But regardless of exactly when it was written, what we can know is that within a few generations or less, the people of Israel would have been facing some unjust kings if not written during a time of a brutal king. They would have been facing the frustrations of hypocrisy as religious leaders at times in Israel literally sought to destroy the Word of God. At times, they would be facing the frustration of captivity. And so for the people of Israel reading Ecclesiastes, one of the questions often on their minds would be, can the people of God be content while living under a wicked king? While living with hypocrisy? 
while the wicked seem to thrive in doing wickedness, and the good die young in their righteousness. While we are in captivity. See, some of us don't like to be honest with the frustrations of the world. Some of us prefer to look away from the bad news, to ignore the hurting, to seek to order our life in such a way that we don't have to look upon the layers of crookedness in this world. And so instead, we then kind of surround ourselves and build upon us layers of positivity and optimism. And anytime anything negative comes our way, we say, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to look at it. No. I get the heart behind that. The problem behind that is that at some point, those frustrations will punch you in the nose. And when they do, how are we going to respond if we're not already looking at it and prepared for it? Do you understand what I'm saying? Disappointment, then, turns into frustrations, which turns into anger. You see, the the super positive person who refuses to ever look at anything difficult will very quickly end up becoming the angry when frustrations strike. Because they weren't looking for it. They had a life built on false expectations, which were ruined, which led to disappointments, which led to frustrations, which led to frustrations being repeated, which led then to an anger of cynicism, or a life of cynicism and, and anger. Now, some of you right now are going to say, Joel, you are being depressing again. Why is Ecclesiastes such a depressing book? And I want to simply respond by saying this. Ecclesiastes is not a depressing book. It's a real book. It's a real book. There's a big difference. Meaning there will be unjust kings. There will be hypocrisy. There is such a thing as death that none of us can escape. So the question is not whether or not there are frustrations in this world and in your life now or eventually in your life, but whether or not those frustrations in that day will speak louder than your joy. Or if you can find a kind of contentment that is louder than the frustrations themselves. And so Paul begins a string of frustrations in chapter 8, verse 1, with a peaceful face. He says, look at the man's face, the woman's face who was wise, and look how pleasant their face is. A man's face, he says, or a man's wisdom, rather, makes his face, what? Shine. And the hardness of his face is changed. He's capping his whole conversation on these frustrations with a beautiful face of, of the wise. It's almost as if he's saying, let me show you where we're going. The person who is informed by wisdom and in the face of frustration, the hardness of their face has been transformed into pleasantness. Just as God's face shines upon us and changes our countenance, the face of the wise has been transformed from that of anger and hardness to pleasantness and shines upon others and transforms their countenance. That's how he begins in verse 1. But now as he goes into verse 2, immediately we turn into frustrations, almost for the next two chapters. I want to walk through some of these frustrations. First, he's frustrated by injustice in verses 2 through verse 9. Verse 2, he says, I say, meaning here is my wisdom, says the author, under the sun. Let me tell you how I think you should live under the sun, in the horizontal, if there is no vertical. He says, keep the king's commands, verse 2. Don't rush out of the king's present quickly, verse 3. Don't ever publicly question the king's wrongdoing in verse 4. Why? 
is verse 9 explains the why. He's talking about these times in which we are suffering under a man who has power over a man to his hurt. He's talking about an unjust king. A king who, if you will oppose him, you will immediately die. Now, the Bible is not passive toward injustice at all. I mean, just think of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, with courage, stood up against a whole unjust system of kings and religious leaders and prophets and nearly lost his life. The Bible doesn't call us to be passive in the face of justice. If you think of a, a more of a, a, an example of our more modern era, uh, someone like uh, Frederick Douglass, who based on his conviction, uh, Christian convictions, stood up powerfully with courage against systems that are unjust. We are not called to be passive, but rather the passivity we see here in this text is framed by those three words, under the sun. Meaning, if all, this, all there is, is is life in this world, and, and if there is no God, and, and if the only thing that you have to value is to possibly extend your life in this world, why would you confront an evil king who's going to immediately chop your head off? That's stupid. That's, that's pretty much what he's saying. We're talking about wickedness and injustice. In verse 8, we highlight the problem. He says, no man has power to retain the Spirit or power over the day of death. Meaning you, you can't control the day of death. And so you might as well, if, 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 there is no, if, if, if we're just living under the sun, you might as well lay, lay low. Play it safe. Keep your head down. Try to survive. There's no discharge from war, meaning the battle of injustice will continue on and on and on. You will never be relieved from this kind of war. You're always going to be living in the crookedness of, of something is wrong with this world. Nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. What he's saying is, is if you think, and this is the lie of sin, if you think that you can in some fashion find contentment through sin, you'll only find more sin. You see, the lie of sin is sin says, look, just give in to the lust one time and you'll be content. And that craving will go away. You'll be free. Just give in to the substance to that feeling, just one more time, and you won't have to deal with it anymore. Just tell a lie. Just tell a lie to get out of this tough situation, and you'll be freed from the situation, and you'll have contentment. You, see the, you, see, you guys all know what I'm talking about, right? Sin lies to us and says wickedness can actually deliver you and somehow draw you into a place of contentment and freedom. And what he's saying is, is no, we are, this is actually total depravity taught from Ecclesiastes. Because we are born in sin. We're born in sin. We are prone to sin. And sin, that which we are prone to, will never deliver those who are given over to it. We, we also see this elsewhere in the text. In verse 11, he says, the heart of children, the children of man, is fully set to do evil. Total depravity. The, the children of man, meaning all human beings, their heart is fully set to do wickedness. Chapter 9, verse 3. The heart of the children of man are full of evil. He says it again. And madness is in their hearts while they live. Meaning we're born in sin. We're trapped in sin. Nobody can deliver us from our own personal sin. And no one can deliver us from the sins in which we are trapped under, which is the sins of wickedness, suffering under unjust rulers. So we're frustrated. We're frustrated by injustice. Secondly, we're frustrated by hypocrisy. This is the next section here in verses 10 through 12 and again in verse 14 of chapter 8. Verse 10, he says, Then I saw the wicked buried. Burial was something in this day for those who are honored. If you are a wicked individual, 
and you are dishonored in this life. Uh, you were dishonored then in your death. Your body would have actually not been buried. And you would have been left out in a common grave where birds would come and the animals would come and eat at their flesh and tear at their bones. But he says this, he says, I saw the wicked buried. You see what he's saying? I see this man who was wicked his whole life and uh, he, he, he was wrong. He cheated his whole way through his life. He was, he, was, he, he was wicked. He was an abuser. And then at his funeral, everybody stood up and said, he was a good man. You see, this is the man who lives a wicked life and is honored in his death. This is what the author sees. He's frustrated by this. He's frustrated by this kind of hypocrisy. As he goes on, he's frustrated by the fact that people are praised in their hypocrisy. Verse 10, he says they go in and out of church. They go in and out of the, real, the holy places. They go in and out of places where, where uh, we are to be celebrating and honoring the presence of God and worshiping God. They're, they're there, they're out, they're living their life in the presence of the saints, and they're honored. And he says, this is the very place where they've done wickedness. That's frustrating, isn't it? Delayed judgment is also a frustration for the author. In verse 11, he says, the sentence against the evil deed is not executed speedily. Now here I believe he's actually referring to God's own judgment being delayed. Certainly this might apply to human situations, and we could talk about this as a matter of wisdom, but I think he's referring to God's own delayed judgment. When the wicked seem to get away with their wickedness, not just before man, but before God going in and out of the holy place, living a life of hypocrisy, living a life of cheating their way to get ahead. You see it. You know it. And they're getting the next raise and they're getting a better job and they're buying a new house and they're doing better than you are. The, the judgment of God for the wicked, he says, is delayed and that itself is frustrating. Even though they do Wrong a hundred times over, he says. They live these lives of prosperity. Going on, verse 14, the upside-down justice is a frustration. Meaning, look around humanity. We don't always see justice. Often what we see is what we'll call inverted justice. Look at verse 14. He says, there is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this is vanity. What he's saying is, is, is that those who deserve what the righteous deserve those things are received by the wicked. What the wicked deserves, the righteous receive. Now, again, with all of this, you might come along and say, man, this is depressing. I didn't come to church for bad news. I didn't come to church just to, just to be reminded how bad the world is. To which I respond, look, it's not really depressing, it's just real. It's being real. The Bible is the most real book there is. If you don't like reality, don't read the Bible. But just look around. Now, the feel-good motivational speaker comes along and tries to present just this rosy view of life. The Bible tells life as it is. And then the Bible looks at you and says, okay, so what are your options? You could pretend that these things don't exist, but that doesn't make them go away, does it? Now, there's no clearer place that we see this kind of, even this inverted justice than on the cross of Jesus Christ itself. Meaning, there what we see is the sinless exchanged for the sinful. We see the Messiah, the perfect Son of God, exchanged in the place of a man named Barabbas. 
meaning justice inverted. Jesus takes the cross that Barabbas deserved. And Barabbas takes the life that Jesus deserved. Oh, but Jesus didn't die as a victim. Jesus chose to die. Meaning, when we look into the spiritual reality of why Jesus went to the cross of Calvary, what we see is the greatest inverted justice of all. That Jesus took the judgment that I deserve and I take the righteousness that is His. Jesus takes the death that you deserve and you receive the life that Jesus deserves. Oh, if you are a sinner trapped in this sin, understanding that there is no freedom in wickedness, turn to Jesus Christ and see that God has orchestrated in such a way, things in such a way that the greatest moment of inverted justice is the moment of your salvation. He took all of the frustration on Himself. There is no frustration unique to you. Jesus knows it all. And He took it all for you, church. Are you with me? Look, see, the real enigma here is that none of us are fully the innocent. Even as we read these, we have to understand, like, we read these as if we are the righteous and they are the bad guys. You know, we always read these as if we're, the, we're, we're kind of the, the, the persecuted underneath the unjust king. And that might be true in some situations. You know, perhaps a man might suffer under an unjust king, but then he might go home and become an unjust father. He might suffer under an unjust king or a hypocrite and see the hypocrite thrive and then he might go and have commit commit an affair against his his wife or maybe even more subtle realities suffering in various ways of inverted justice yet just not loving the broken that are right around us contributing to the pain in this world and the way that we speak to one another? I mean, who of us can say, oh, I'm the innocent? You know, who of us can say, I am the just? I'm on the side of good. Meaning, our frustrations as we read this text are compounded by the fact that we are the perpetrated and the perpetrator. We can see ourselves in both. Frustration continues, and that leads me to my third frustration here, and that is death, because death is what's coming to all who are under the curse of sin. <clears throat> chapter 9, verse 2 through 10, moving into chapter 9 here. His frustrations continue. In verse 2, it, the word it, and the word same event is referring to death. He hasn't stated death yet, and that's why it's a little confusing to read these verses. We have to get uh, toward the end of the verses to see the word death, but he's talking about it, the event that happens to all, meaning both the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, is that event of death. In verse 3, he calls this event an evil, meaning death is not inherently good. He doesn't present death as something that we would hope for and wish for. But rather, death is the greatest reminder that sin exists in this world. It is the most unnatural event that any of us will ever go through as our bodies decay, break down, and die. But it's a reality nonetheless. It's a great evil. We learn a couple things about death and life here in this section. In verse 4, we see that life is a blessing. He says, a living dog is better than a dead lion. That's an interesting proverb, isn't it? A, a dead lion is worse off than a living dog. If, a, if the lion was alive, he would destroy 
Teddy. But since the lion is dead, Teddy in his weakness is better off. It's a simple proverb. Meaning how, no matter how great you are in this world and how wicked and how evil you are, the, the, the living are in a place of hope simply because they have life. Life is a blessing, he's saying. Another lesson we learn here is that death is truly the end in verse Verse 5, the, the dead have no knowledge of life in this world. Unlike the superstitious religions of the writer's day in which they believed that they could commune with the dead and that the dead would somehow communicate back with them, that was all part of the pagan religions of the day, which is also somewhat prevalent today. What the author is saying, according to God, is that when the dead are dead, when people leave this world, there is no more interaction with this world. Meaning, even that kind of superstition, in a way, is kind of a, it's sort of a way to deny, deny death. To say that the dead somehow linger with us. But rather, he's saying, they're gone. Death is truly the end. He, he emphasizes that, again in verse 6, forever they have no share in all that is done under the sun. Another thing we learn about death here is that the memory of the dead is forgotten in verse 5. Over time, we will be forgotten. You know, perhaps when I die, my loved ones will get together once a year to celebrate my life and I don't know, eat a Snickers bar or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, but then over time, those, those gatherings will begin to be fewer and fewer. And at some point, someone might say, man, we should get together again in memory of Joel. But at some point, my memory will slip. We love you, Joel. <sighs> Thanks, bro. And then when Eminem dies, you know, his family will gather. And then at some point, at some point, no matter how much we love each other, we'll slip away from, from the memory of even our closest loved ones and the world. Okay. Some would say, well, that's depressing. <laughs> to which I respond, no, it's not. It's just real. Like the fact that you think that's the, like, it just means that you're not looking at reality. Look at, look at the past, look at the future. Just be real with yourself. I got you, bro. But what are our options, Eminem? What are our options? One, we could ignore all of this and say, well, it's not going to happen to me. Or, or just ignore suffering as a whole and ignore the frustrations of the world. Another option is this. We could fall into despair. Which I think is often, when we, talk, when we say something like, that's depressing, what we're saying is, is I've been ignoring these things, you're reminding, of these thing, you're reminding me of these things, and my only category now to move is that of despair. Because I don't have any other category to put these things in. The third category I want to give you today is the category of faith. The category of trusting God when we see the frustrations of the world. Are you with me? This is not just my idea. I want to show you in the text where I see this. In chapter 9, verse 7 through 10, there's a whole overhaul of conversation happening here. An overhaul of thought. As he moves from the frustrations to this beautiful picture of contentment with the world that we live in. And here what we see in these verses is that contentment, according to the author, I believe can actually speak louder to us than the frustrations. Quickly going through these, he says in verse 7, enjoy your food and your drink with a merry heart. Receive these things with joy. Verse, uh, uh, verse 8, enjoy the provisions that you have. A white, white garment, he, he references in verse 8 of chapter 9, would refer, according to the commentators, as, as the kind of clothing that would keep you cool in the hot desert. And oil would help your chapped skin in the sun. Meaning, you know, you've got a warm coat for a rainy, cool 
day. Enjoy that coat, is what he's saying. Enjoy the provisions that you have. In verse 9, he says, enjoy your spouse. Enjoy the life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Vain life there, he's not like making fun of you. He's he's talking about the, the brevity of your life. Connecting it with death in verse 10. All the days of your vain life because that is your portion in life. Meaning you've been given your wife as a gift and your toil at which you toil under the sun. Now some of you are like, well, that's not fair because I'm single and I want to be married and I'm not. I'm like, well, some of, you know, we got some godly men in the, uh, in the church. We got some godly women in the church. Maybe, I'm just saying, if you want to get married, and I digress, but even if we're single, you know, we're talking about companionship. We're talking about just receiving those that God has put into our life as gifts. And you could read any relationship into this. Our relationships are not just random acts of, of you know, chaos that have come out of nowhere that we've just fallen into accidentally. Like perhaps you didn't intend to meet the friend that you have or the spouse that you have, but you did. And when we step back and we see God's providence and His orchestration of all things, what we discover is that the people that we have in our lives are intentional. Maybe not by us, but by God. And so we receive them as as gifts. And this connection with death, and looking at verse 10, he talks about here, you know, there's no knowledge of uh, uh, work or, or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, which means death, all right, means death to which you are going, what he's saying is, is these things that you've been given, oh, I skipped, I'm sorry, verse 10, enjoying your work. If you, if you have something to do, you get a job, do it hard. Give it your all. Which, by the way, he's, he, throughout Ecclesiastes, he's, he's helping us rethink of even work. That work itself, contributing and doing something good, is actually enjoyable. Not, uh, n- not just simply a curse. These things that we're given, food, drink, the warm coat, wife, friends, these are part of this short life in which we live. And they're intended for us to enjoy now. That's what he's saying. Meaning life is short. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you. Are you with me? We are so often caught up in our frustrations that we can't enjoy the gifts that God has given us. While we're on the ground sitting at a pond, we're frustrated because life is too boring and we just want to be flying. And now that we arrive at our dream and we're flying, we're filled with all of the stresses of work and we look down and we're like, man, I wish I was just fishing. We're so wrapped up in our frustrations that we can't enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. Man, I didn't enjoy what I had. Oh, let none of us say that on our deathbed. I don't think anybody on their deathbed would say, you know what, I wish that I focused more so on the frustrating feelings that I had in my life, and I wish I just leaned into the stress a bit more. I think most of us would say, you know what? Life has actually turned out all right by God's grace, and I'm pretty happy. One thing I regret is just missing out on the simple pleasures that God has given me, had given me my whole life. You know, some people are so frustrated by the world, so frustrated by their frustrations so frustrated by the things that things things aren't going exactly the way that they want them to go or they're not feeling exactly the way that they want to feel they're not as successful as they want they're not getting over things as quickly as they want they're so frustrated by these things that if god slapped them in a face in their face with a blessing they would miss it they would not enjoy it If your frustration, this is a warning to you, if your frustration speaks louder than your contentment, 
you will not last in your relationships. You will not last in your work. You will not last in your joy. I want you to understand that contentment is not passivity. Because too often we, we, we listen to the world and we think that the content person is a person who's just passive with life. No, contentment is not passivity. As a matter of fact, anger comes from passivity. What I mean by that is when we are disappointed because of our expectations are not met and that leads us into frustrations, if we are passive with our frustrations, we will become angry. Be a passive person and you'll end up an angry person. But rather, contentment is an active decision to trust God and as a result, to seek to be like Jesus in the way that I love my friend, in the way that I love my church and my spouse, my, my work, my, my job, in the way that I uh, seek to handle myself uh, privately as well as publicly. Contentment is active, you see. Paul summarizes this, including the active piece, and all of Ecclesiastes 8 and 9 here in Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to turn there really quick, I think it is page 918 in the Pew Bible. In Ephesians chapter 4, I want to read you Paul's summary, as well as his own personal testimony of discovering how contentment speaks louder than his frustrations. In verse 12 of Ephesians 4, he says, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Look at that word, learned. Somebody say learned. Active. He wasn't passive. He learned how to be content. When things are low, and when things abound, when there is plenty and when there is hunger, when there is abundance and when there is need, I have learned how to live. How? Verse 13, he tells us, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Doesn't that give you context to the verse that's almost always quoted out of context? Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 4.13? I'm in Philippians, actually. I'm sorry, guys. I'm sorry. I'm in Philippians. I've been, I've been reading you the wrong. I've been reading you the wrong verses. Look, just hear me instead of flipping around in your Bibles. Philippians 4, 12 through 13. What he's saying is this, is when, when I am low, and when life abounds, meaning when things are good. When I'm at Golden Corral. And when I'm starving. When I've got savings. And when I'm broke. He's saying, I've learned to be content. How? Verse 14. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What he's saying is, is the all things is, all, means all of these different situations. The do is contentment. Meaning I can be content in every single situation. Why? Don't miss the next two words. Through Him. Not because of Paul, not because of me, not because I've self-realized contentment, but rather I'm looking outside of myself and I see Him. Through Him. Through Christ, who strengthens me. Back in Ecclesiastes, if you can flip back there, we're not left without Christ. But rather, Christ is offered as the fulfillment of Ecclesiastes. Now, granted, we're in the Old Testament. You're not going to see Christ, uh, Christ's name in the Old Testament. But Christ is the fulfillment of Ecclesiastes. Meaning, because of Christ and everything He means, contentment can be louder than my frustrations. A man was going through a period of life which was marked by personal disappointment, 
discouragement, unfair treatment, and he even had false rumors about his character being spread. And his response was this. He says, my consolation is simply this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. There he's quoting 1 Timothy 6. 6. How can we find contentment? This kind of contentment that allows us to eat and to drink and to enjoy our coat and to enjoy our friends and our spouse, if you got one. Like how, how can we have this kind of contentment in this kind of frustrating world? I want to point out a couple things from the text that show us how. Let me give you three headings as we close. Number one, contentment comes from knowing that frustrations, these frustrations that we're talking about, will be swallowed up in victory. In chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, we see a very interesting declaration here. He says, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, I know it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him, meaning they serve God. But it will not be well with the wicked. Think about this. He's, al- he, he, he's almost uh, um, disagreeing with what he just said. In chapter 7, and repeat, the theme is repeated in chapter 8, the wicked are prolonging their life with their wickedness, and the righteous are dying young in their righteousness. That's been the theme. But here he says... Even though he just said he, that the wicked prolongs his life, in verse 13 he says, but it will not go well with the wicked. What's he talking about? And if the righteous die young in their righteousness and even are crushed under the wickedness of the wicked, he says in verse 12, yet I know it will go well with them. What's he talking about? I think you know where we're going. You see, the frustrations will be swallowed up in victory. There is a future reality to this. Almost as if a great mountain in the shadows that the author can see, but he's not quite fully explaining it to us in detail, but he's pushing us toward that mountain. And that is the mountain of Jesus Christ in which death and sin and wickedness and evil is swallowed up and judged in victory. And those who are in Christ come out the other end, raised to walk in the newness of life. Meaning, if somebody prospers in their wickedness, they will not really prosper. That's just, that's just, that's just a, a, a very short time. Meaning, when the, uh, when the wicked have plans to use their wickedness to harm you and to, to do better in life, Scripture says that God will, in some fashion, frustrate the plans of the wicked. There is no greater place when this mystery, I would say, was left a mystery than on that first day when Jesus lies silent in the grave. On on that first day, it's almost as if wicked, the wickedness finally triumphed. The wicked prospered in their wickedness. Death smiled as the grave held him. Going into the second day, things didn't look good. The grave mocked the author of Ecclesiastes. In what way will the wicked somehow see judgment? In what way will it go well for the righteous? Not with Jesus lying in the grave. But church, I'm here to remind you that something happened early on the third day. When Jesus got up from the dead, He defeated death itself. 
And if death is defeated, if the grave is defeated, then sin is defeated. And He looks at all of us across the cavern of, de uh, of death and He calls us, trust in Him, come to Him, and find life, find hope, find healing in Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 9, verse 4. It says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. Let me read that again. I want you to go, mmm. <laughs> but he who is joined with all the living has hope. There you go. I think of skin cells attached to living skin. Those skin cells have hope to continue in their life engrafted into the life source, connected with the heart. Don't you understand that our hope is that we have been engrafted into the body of Christ? We who were once dead are brought into Jesus and those who are connected to the living have hope. When we look in faith to Jesus, we are linked with Jesus. Jesus looked down the, fro the, the throat of frustration itself. And Jesus says, I hate you, frustration. I hate you, frustration. I hate you, death. To such a degree that I'm going into you and I'm grabbing the heart of frustration and destroying it and coming out the other end, the victor. Therefore, second heading of application, contentment comes from knowing that God's blessings, all these things, things we've been talking about, God's blessings are signposts. Meaning the food, the drink, the companionship, the joy of work, every smile, every moment of laughter are all signposts of something greater. What is that something greater? We see it in verse 7. He gives us the reason for these things. He says this, for, second half of verse 7, for, meaning here's the foundation for the good gifts that you have. For God has already approved what you do. This is as close to justification by grace through faith as we're going to get in Ecclesiastes. He's preaching the gospel here. Don't miss this. What he's saying is this. Your ability to enjoy life now in the midst of frustration is knowing that God has already approved of you. You know, it's as if like uh, I, I had uh, offended you in, in some great fashion and, and you send a latte with oat milk my way. That latte with oat milk what it, what it communicates to me is that you're okay with me. You see what I'm saying? It's a signpost of a greater reality. It's a signpost of a reconciled relationship. The, the, the gifts, the, the, the drink, the food, the, the companionship, the work, these things are not ends in and of themselves, but they point us to the reality that we are okay with God. You see, the kings of this world tell you that you're worthless. Hypocrisy tells you that you're pointless. Death tells you that you are forgotten. But God is saying, I approve of you. How? Because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which has been donated into your bank account because you looked in faith to Jesus. By faith. And thirdly and lastly, contentment comes from knowing that frustrations are part of God's providence. Your contentment comes from knowing that frustrations are part of God's providence. In verse 16 and 17, really quick here, he seems to acknowledge how simplistic uh, his solution is of eating and drinking. And he says, I saw the work of God that man cannot find out Man cannot find out the work, meaning the work of God. Even though a wise man, verse 17, claims to know uh, various things, he cannot find 
it out. What he's saying is this, is here's the problem that we have, is that God is at work and we cannot find it out. And I actually love this. Because what he's saying is, is, as we think of our frustrations in life, there is more to God's work than you can know. There, is thing, there are things that God is doing that you cannot know. Meaning, our frustration is not with God. But our frustration is with our own limited ability to know how all things are working together for good to them who love God. I think of Job asking God the question, why? Why all of this suffering? And God says, Job, where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? He's not smacking Job. What he's saying is, Job, if you can't understand these greater realities of how the universe fits together, how will you ever understand even the greater mystery of how I work all suffering together for your good? Our challenge is our own limited knowledge. In chapter 9, verse 1, however, he talks about the providence of God. He says, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds, all of their deeds are in the hand of God. He says, whether it's love or hate, man doesn't know, both love and hate are before him. Meaning both love and hate serve the plans of God. What he's saying is, is that every righteous deed, every wicked action, are in the hands of God. God is never out of control. God has never lost control. Nothing happens by mistake. Nothing happens just simply because God allows it even though it's not good. Everything happens because God has ordained it to happen for your good and for His glory. Even love and even hate serve the plans of God. Not a single event occurs beyond divine orchestration. And so again, I could ask you, like, what options do you have? Despair, ignore, or faith in a sovereign God. Sinclair Ferguson writes this as we close. He says, true contentment means embracing the Lord's will in every aspect of His providence simply because it is His providence. Let me read that again, because that's profound. True contentment means embracing the Lord's will in every aspect of His providence. Why? Why should I do that? I ask Sinclair. Why should I embrace His will in every aspect of His providence? And Sinclair looks at me and he says, Joel, it's simply because it is His providence. What he's, what he's saying is this, and this is what the author is communicating to us. Everything that happens is part of God's providence. True contentment flows from knowing that it is His providence. In other words, our contentment in uh, frustration comes from us knowing that we can trust the character of God. It leads us to ask that question then of ourselves. Can I trust the character of God? And I wonder if somebody can testify, yes, I can trust the character of God. I wonder if anybody can testify to the fact that you have found contentment in frustration because you can trust the character of God. Maybe I'm not feeling free right now, but I am free. And one day I surely will experience that freedom. So even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For God is with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You are with us. That You haven't left us. And not only that, God, You are a God that's in control. 
And we can trust Your providence in frustration and lead us then, God, to a place of contentment that we, like Paul, would be able to say, in all of these things, I've learned the secret of contentment through Christ who strengthens us. Strengthen us, Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.